Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation podcast co-hosted by myself, Lenya Wilson, a black woman, and Alexandra Titalia, a white woman. going to get to know Lenya a little better. And one of the things I love about you, Lenya, is that you live in the present so much that I'm always engaged with what you're doing in the present and what you're striving for, but actually you're not so focused on necessarily your history or your past. The way I am as a writer, I'm always mining my past. And so you're not like that at all. So mm -hmm. I actually have a lot of questions. <laughs> All right, I think I'm so, ready. I guess let's start with what your cultural background is. Like, so tell me about your parents. So my father is African-American. He is a direct descendant from slaves from Darien, Georgia. And if you ever watch the movie Glory, one of the battles was fought in Darien, Georgia, which is outside of Savannah. And my mother is Puerto Rican and she grew up in Spanish Harlem. Okay, where'd they meet? This is such a cute story. They met in laboratory technology school. They shared a microscope. So this was like high school or? No, after high school, because okay. they both grew up, my dad most grew up extremely poor, but my parents grew up really poor and they, they needed to find ways to get out of poverty. And uh, becoming a laboratory technologist was a good steady job that they could do. And both of them went on to have other degrees and jobs after, but th this was the way for them to make money. Wow, and your dad's a lawyer. My dad is a lawyer. My dad went to college and then law school and it took him a long time because he had to do that while working the night shift as a laboratory technologist. So yeah, he was a lawyer, he's retired now, he's 80 something. So what kind of lawyer was he? He was a public defender, mostly for children. So he had a lot of, you know, cases where the children were being taken from their parents. There was a lot of times when he would come home and beg my mother if they could like, please just foster this one kid because, wow. yeah. It, I don't think it ever happened, but it was just like, yeah, my poor dad. So, and then your mom went to- She went back to school and she got her degree in social work. I remember she ran a program for the homeless mentally ill. That was her population where she focused all of her time and energy. And so she ran this program in New York City for the homeless mentally ill. And also she would have horror stories about some of her clients and she would get really attached and then they would commit suicide. And so, so it was hard. So in growing up, you, you grew up in a very socially aware household. Yeah. You very. feel that you were growing up more socially aware than your peers? I don't know. I, I guess so. See, I grew up in Spanish Harlem and I feel like sometimes the way I grew up was very strange. We lived in this complex and it was called 1199 at the time. And, and it was a complex built by the 1199 Union, which is what the union my father was with as a laboratory technologist. And they were really nice co-ops. So he owned it. We were the second or third family to move in. And I think we were the first in our family to have property. So it was a very upwardly mobile type of situation. But if you cross the street, just literally cross the street, the people were in abject poverty. Wow. I don't know. It was this weird bubble. And I never really felt comfortable because then you go to school and you're in school with 
these other people and you, you feel funny inviting people home to your house. And it, it, it was just, it was a strange, it was a strange way to grow up until I went to high school. Okay. That's because why, when you went to high school, you were with people more in the same socioeconomic. Yeah. All different types. So I didn't always feel like I was different. Even in Harlem where I was, I didn't feel different in the way I looked, which was great. I always felt comfortable being a black girl growing up. It was just the money thing was always a weird thing. And I'm, I'm sure my parents tried really hard. Like they were trying hard to lift us out of where they came from because my dad grew up extremely poor you know like his mother was the daughter of a sharecropper they had this little hut in the property that they had in darien and he used to walk to school like the stories were horrific that he grew up in georgia then yeah he grew up in georgia he came to new york to make more to make money because you couldn't do that in darien him and his brother and his sister my aunt wink who moved back to georgia and lives on the very land that they had as children. She built wow. a house there and she lives there, my Aunt Wink. Does, she, does your Aunt Wink feel very proud that she went oh, back yes. to that? Very proud, very proud. She's an amazing woman. She's the most amazing matriarch you could ever have. That's, that's I, Yeah, I am so, so honored to be a part of her family every day. So interesting that you grew up in a blended relationship. Did you find that you had to identify as Puerto Rican or as Black? Yeah, yeah. there was a lot of that sometimes. (laughs) You know, you're never quite Black enough for the Black folks and you're never quite Puerto Rican enough for the Puerto Rican folks. Back then, it was not something that happened all the time. So it was way harder to grow up like that. Now, of course, you see it all the time. Tracy Ellis Ross, I think, was the first celebrity that I knew that was mixed, not mixed Puerto Rican, but mixed black and white. And the way she handled herself and the way she handled walking through those two cultures, you know, was a good inspiration for me on how I can manage that. I know that a lot of my... African-American cousins have issue with the Afro-Latina movement, which I I identify as Afro-Latina because a lot of these Latina women, they're not necessarily pro-Black, like they're just not real allies. Let's just say that. And uh, they'll date Black men and things like that, but they're just not real allies. And I know a lot of my African-American family have a real problem with that particular thing. And even growing up, my mom had a real problem with my hair and my cousin's hair because it's not like her hair. She had white women hair and I have black girl hair. And um, yeah, I have black girl hair, even though even my cousins will say that my hair is not black girl hair. So were your grandparents alive when you were a child? Just my mom's parents. My dad's parents died before, like my dad's mom died just before my parents got married. Okay, so you're a descendant of sharecroppers and slaves. What's always amazing to me is when we really start talking about this, when we start talking about the oral history, it's just not that long ago. No, it wasn't that long ago. What kind of stories did you grow up with? I didn't grow up with very many stories. We did travel to Georgia where my dad grew up quite frequently, but I just don't have a lot of stories. My cousin Pam is the oral historian of our family and I probably just don't pay enough attention and I probably should. And one day I will. (laughs) 
but she has all of the stories of our family. I know that they were sharecroppers. I know that they, I believe they got their 40 acres in a mule. They're one of the lucky ones. And that's why they have all this land. I know that it's parceled out at the moment. And my aunt is paying tremendous amount of taxes on all of it. I went recently two years ago with Shane and we spent um, a day in Darien and we spent a week in Savannah, which was magical. I went to the church. It was really beautiful. For three weeks afterwards, I was like, let's move to Savannah. Now, of course, I'm so glad that never happened. <laughs> I'm actually, I remember when that happened. You'd only been living here a year and you're like, maybe here. And I was like, don't leave me yet. <laughs> it was a really lovely trip, but yeah, no. Can you, you see what's happening to them now? No, I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm here in LA. I do worry about my aunt. I am not going to lie. I worry about her being in Darien all by herself. She's over 80 years old, but man, does that woman have it going on. So I think she'll be okay. She'll be fine. She's a survivor. Yes. Before we move on to styling and your career in Australia, was there pressure to have a career like your parents? Oh, yeah. So gone your own way. Like I. But I've always, thank God, I've always like, I never did anything that the way they wanted to do. <laughs> I mean, you have, wait a minute, let's get clear. How many, tell everybody how many siblings you have. I have two younger brothers. Okay. But you're the oldest. I'm the oldest. And one became an accountant and the other one is a human resource specialist. They have the respectable jobs. But you know, what's interesting is when I was in probably elementary school, my teachers started pushing me towards drama and I was in all the plays in high school. And even in college, I was in all the plays and that's where I wanted to go. That's what I wanted to do. But they were so anti my becoming an actress that I think because I got accepted into all these different programs, into these different schools, and they wouldn't let me go. Wow. So I, they really did stamp that out of me. And I had to find another way to become creative. And like I took all these office jobs to make money because I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I did work in a creative industry. I worked in publishing and I worked for a long time at the Brooklyn Public Library. Okay. And that wasn't very creative, but we worked with all these different programs in a creative way to help children in Brooklyn with their homework and with learning to read and the, the poverty divide. And my husband at the time, after 9-11, decided we were going to move to Australia to be with his family and it would be safer and better to raise our son. Because in Australia, when we first moved there, kids could still play in the, like, the 1950s outside until the lights came home right. and everything. So, well, tell me, so were you in Sydney or Melbourne? We were in Sydney. How was it being a Black American woman raising a Black son in Sydney? It was hard. I'm not even going to lie. It was so hard. My son has a very different sense of what being a Black person is. And for some of my family, it's a worry. Wow. Why? Because he does, it seems like he's lost a bit of his identity. And it's not through anything that I could have done. It's just there's, there is no Black culture, or there was at that time. And it was really funny because he became really good friends with, and this woman shaped who I became a, as well. So I need to say thank you to Sarah Tamma. But he became really good friends with this boy in school who is also mixed race black uh, father and a white mother. And Sarah was a makeup artist in Australia. And she really helped shape my career as a stylist there. 
And she gave me so much advice, so much help. She worked with me, even though she was so famous already, she would still take the time to do shoots with me. And it really helped a lot with building my career there. And it started like when, almost when I moved there. We moved to Double Bay while we were waiting to figure out where we were going to go. And Double Bay is a suburb of Sydney. Australia is all about suburbs. (laughs) There's a small central business district, which they call the CBD, and then everything else is the suburbs. And this was a small suburb with a really good public school program. And we moved to Double Bay in this like crazy, horrible apartment. And then finally, we got a house in Paddington later. Our marriage didn't survive moving across the world. Yeah, that's a lot of stress. I've read narratives of Black Americans going abroad and having just a completely different, sometimes relieving experience as being Black, not in, of, of Black in America. Yeah. And, that, and so he doesn't even have anything to measure his experience against because he didn't yeah. grow up here. And that's got to be interesting because there's something missing in the table conversation or the holiday conversation. Yes. There's so things like, that he just doesn't understand. Yeah. And he hasn't lived it, which in some ways has to be a blessing for a mother to know he didn't have to go through that. It is. And it's also a curse because he can't understand where I came from. And he doesn't understand the movement that's happening here. He, he can't relate to the anger and the frustration that Black Americans have. He listens to someone stupid like Morgan Freeman doing that dumb interview where he says, oh, Black Americans, we, we've come so far. We're not being marginalized like we did before. I- And I felt really sad watching that because he just doesn't understand. And I don't think anything I can say at this point in time will fix that. It's true, but that's part of letting go and being a parent. And you, what's amazing is thinking of you as a parent, you're always so much Lenya, the individual, Lenya, the woman. And what's interesting to me is that you followed him into fitness. So you have this whole stylist career. You still have it here in LA. But I met you at CrossFit and we were in the same place. We liked being really active and we were trying something new. Yeah. And then I hurt my back and quit CrossFit. And you now are a, like, a, a champion power lifter. So how did that all happen? Why actually were you even interested or curious about CrossFit or lifting? Was it Kadeem's experience? No, no. Because Kadeem's more of a gymnast. I think gymnastics, rock climbing... Like that kind of is more what he does to help with his ninja stuff. But now ninja is a sport in itself that he just fully is immersed in. But I think just being a woman that's over 50, I kind of, I got really fat in Australia, really fat. And I had, so this is going to be news to a lot of people, but I think I've told you, like I had liposuction. Yeah, you did. You told me. Yes. So I had liposuction and I didn't want to gain the weight back. Like I was absolutely like, I'm not going to do this. I am not going to go back to this because it was the, I fully believe it was going on HRT that did this to me because I had never, ever put on weight. Actually up until I was 40, I struggled to gain weight. So it was the weirdest thing to just go from being really not thin, but being uh, normal looking to this rotund woman. And so then I was like, I got to do something. So I would do these workouts at home. I, I started doing the like seven minute workout. Sure. And it went from seven minutes to 30 minutes. And then I, I just thought this isn't going to 
work over time. And I saw that ad on Facebook for CrossFit Los Feliz, but it, it was such a weird misrepresentative ad. Remember, it didn't even say CrossFit. It was like, right. oh, we want people to come and lose weight. And so I thought, you know what, let's go try this something different. And it was near the house. I could walk. So I went. And I don't know why I fell in love with it so much. It just, I loved it. Partly, I remember you were new to LA. It was community. Yes. And it was measurable differences. And so yes. even before I got hurt, it was incredible to be able to see like in two weeks, the level of strength yeah. that, that you could gain was very empowering. I mean, that's what I remember from it. And changing the diet, like I feel like that was the, the, a big step as well, um, the way they taught us how to eat. Even though I don't particularly subscribe to the paleo way of eating now, it was just I started to think about fitness in terms of also food and not a lack of food. That's the big issue with diet culture. I didn't think about it as a lack of food anymore. I thought about it fueling me. And once I changed that mindset, the weight actually started to drop off. Like right now I'm on this thing called a reverse diet with my nutritionist where she's been slowly adding calories to my diet for two months and I've only gained three pounds. Wow. Yeah. How long are your workouts now? Depends on the day. So now I'm powerlifting. I should right. say that. I'm not crossfitting anymore. I do cardio twice a week, but I don't really cardio. I do the three main lifts, the back squat, deadlift, and bench press. So my workouts depend on that day, what lift I'm doing, and then I have accessory work to help with those lifts. So they go anywhere from an hour to two hours. Sometimes if I'm really lazy, three, but I do spend a lot more time warming up because I'm a older person. Um, I, I spent a lot of time warming up. So I could spend a good 40 minutes just doing warm up exercises to make sure that my body is warm enough to prepare myself. So I don't so hurt myself. Bringing it back to race for a minute, how integrated is the powerlifting world? Let's take it to CrossFit for a minute, because okay. let me tell you, race and CrossFit has become an issue. And this is why CrossFit nearly got canceled. Right. So if you look at CrossFit, and this is to me is the weirdest thing because black people have infiltrated every major sport because genetically black people have the muscle structure for a lot of these sports. So you would just assume that you would see black people in the upper levels of CrossFit and you don't because there is a racist element to CrossFit that I never quite understood because in the community that I have and the one that I've built with my husband at the gym that we own, right. there are black people. There are so many people of color. We have gay people, lesbian people, non-binary people. We don't have as many black people as I would like, but it's still so mixed compared to other communities. I just was absolutely floored when it really started to come out how racist CrossFit was. And, and there was this kind of goal for a couple of years that I wanted to be that black master athlete that went to the CrossFit games. And I tried really hard for a couple of years, but it's just so hard on your shoulders. There's a lot of shoulder movement. I just don't have that shoulder mobility. And I wasn't enjoying myself. It wasn't becoming fun anymore. Training was actually just something that I would cry because I couldn't do something or because I had reached a plateau. And it shouldn't be like that. I should not cry at the end of a workout. I moved to powerlifting because those three lifts we do in CrossFit and I was all right with them. They were pretty good and they don't hurt me. 
And when I moved into powerlifting, there's so much more diversity. And it's crazy how much diversity there is in the female section of powerlifting and how tight that community is. I found like in the CrossFit community that there's a little bit of bitchiness amongst the female population and there's a lot of this, oh, she's doing this, so I need to do that. But in the powerlifting community, these ladies lift you up. I'm part of a group that's on Instagram and we message each other, you know, and we're all black women in powerlifting. It's unbelievable. There's actually a group called Sisters of Powerlifting. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, I will never leave this sport because the community is so beautiful and strong. Now, is it an international community or is it a... National. We have our national community here and then they have the IPF, which is the International Powerlifting Federation. One day, maybe I'll go to the IPF uh, championships. I don't really plan to. Of course you're going. Of course that's (laughs) happening. I have no doubt. Well, I want to ask in relation to this, how is your husband Shane supporting and handling the fact that you're a medalist in powerlifting? He takes me to all the competitions. He's (laughs) always there. He actually has been my handler. The first competition where I won, he was the person that wrote down what my next lifts were going to be. And he helped me warm up. And he was like, no, you're going to do this weight. No, do that weight. Because I can't think on those days as much as I need to have all of that under control. So you need to have someone in your corner and he has been in my corner. And when he's my handler, he's the guy. And he drove from Los Angeles to Arizona for this competition for me. Cause I don't drive. (laughs) Oh, that's right. That's another thing everybody needs to know about Lenya is that she lives in Los Angeles and that she doesn't drive. And I don't mean that she just refuses to drive. I mean that she just doesn't drive. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I am a New Yorker through and through when it comes to driving. So how'd you meet Shane? Everybody should know Shane's white. So Lenya's in an interracial marriage. Yes. Um, Shane is white Australian. Charmaine my best friend in Australia, who's still my best friend, she's just living in Australia at this moment. She was performing at another mutual friend's birthday party at a bar. And Shane knows these people as well. It was very funny, very weird that Shane and I had not met prior, but it wasn't meant to be because Shane had, was uh, married and I was married and, and it wasn't until we were divorced and I was um, divorced for three or four years at that point. And he was getting divorced when we met. So I guess timing means everything. And so we met at this party and my friend Charmaine is gay. So he thought that I was gay, even though I was flirting outrageously with him. With the total purpose of taking him home. (laughs) But it didn't happen. And then it wasn't until later that like the next day, friends of his were like, no, she's straight. And then he had to find me. And he found me and our first date lasted three days. Wow. And yeah, now here we are 10 years later. And he came and he moved to Los Angeles for you. Yes, he did. That's just lovely. Yeah. Um, Taking him to Red Lobster. (laughs) (laughs) All the Beyonce fans, you guys know what that means. Okay, everybody, I like Beyonce, but I don't really listen to Beyonce very much. And so Lenya needed to explain that to me. Google it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So last question. 
does race come up a lot in your relationship? Not really. Not really. Shane's best friend is Aboriginal. So he's very sensitive to it. This has been his best friend since he was seven years old. So he's grown up obviously different because race relations in Australia are very different. But, you know, he still understands and is sensitive to all of that. So we do talk about it. And lately he's trying very hard to become an anti-racist. But it's difficult because he grew up in Australia and, you know, they have a really bad reputation for races outside of being white. Yes. That's, it's hard. Like Kadeem, he just didn't grow up in the ether of the American strife that, w- that we all grow up with. The first time we came to America together, we were traveling for a holiday. On TV in Australia, it seems like there are very few Black people, if any. When he arrived here, he said he was shocked to see how many Black people there were because his understanding from TV in Australia was that there weren't that many because we're not represented properly. So he was shocked. Wow, that's so interesting. And the truth is here, I certainly know you experience racism because of your interracial relationship. Yeah. So it's 2020 and we're in Los Angeles. Yep. It's still happening. Yeah. It's better here than it is in New York, but it still happens. People are funny about it. I think we're okay where we live, but I think if we lived somewhere else, it could be a problem. But it's interesting to me in that sense that you need to think about where you're going to live because you're thinking about how much strife you want in your everyday life. Yeah. Whether something's going to be a problem or not. Just like, again, bringing this full circle, like back to race, what makes living in the United States an exhausting experience for black people is because they have to think about those things. I, Eric and I weren't thinking about those things at all when we bought a house. Yeah. We were like, what can we afford? That was the only real <laughs> question in Los Angeles was that's what we were thinking about. We weren't really thinking about what the experience is going to be when I'm in that neighborhood. Uh, um, well, if we were in New York, it'd be worse. In, 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 in Australia, it was worse. <laughs> so I'm happy. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad you're here and I'm so glad I met you. If you can find Lenya on Instagram, there's a video of her just seriously um, squatting 200 pounds. Yeah, I'm going for the California state record in my age and weight group. And I am Lenya underscore goddess underscore that bitch. The reason that she is that we were talking about pronouns and we both use pronouns. So I have her, she, like after my signature line of my email. And we were talking and she's like, oh, I'm not using she, her. I am goddess, that bitch. And those are her pronouns. (laughs) Those are my pronouns. I don't want to be she and I don't want to be her. I want to be goddess, the one, that bitch. This is Lenya. I love it. I love it. Please join us next week for our discussion on microaggressions. You can find us at womenbridgingthegap.com. We'd really appreciate you leaving us a review and rating in Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. Links are in the show notes, as are other ways to reach us.